good afternoon, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. We have some market commentary today. A very uh, special guest. We'd like to welcome back Mr. Chris Berry of House Mountain Partners. But before we get into that conversation, let's take a look quickly at the numbers. Uh, gold had a big move up early this morning, went up and touched kind of the conversion of where the um, uh, 200 day moving average and the 50 day moving average has kind of come together. It got up to that about oh, 1855, but then was rejected, currently trading at 1843. Overall, still a good day for gold. Uh, silver uh, did have a nice move up this morning, but has been since been sold down to $27.17. Uh, we're going to step away from precious metals with Chris and really talk about his forte, and that is the energy metals complex. He's been an analyst since 2009 with his focus on energy metals. And um, Chris, this is kind of what you've been living for. <laughs> you know, what a bull market. Yeah, I guess <laughs> every dog has its day, right? And uh, <laughs> battery metals are having a a nice run right now so it's 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 a fun time to be involved i, I you know i remember uh, you and i first met uh, actually it was close to two years ago now when we were in new york city for the uh, sme uh, mining finance uh meeting and conference mm -hmm. and that's when i first uh, sat in on one of your panel conversations and really sat in i mean who would i mean even two years ago you were still putting this thesis out of the, the bull case for metals based on supply and demand. Little did we know that, you know, 2020 would come around and then into 2021 and it would be so much, you know, give and take and pull and push in this complex. And given what we know now, I mean, let's talk about kind of the macro movement behind energy metals. And then we'll maybe go into some specific, some specific metal type of conversation. Sure. I, I think, look, 2020 was really a pivotal year with respect to energy metals. And, you know, you can look at them, you can talk about lithium, cobalt, graphite, vanadium, copper, nickel. I mean, I sort of think each one has its own case. But generally speaking, you know, the first half of the first three quarters of, of 2020, you know, was sort of spelling in some funny ways is spelling the death knell, I think, for the thesis. I mean, everything froze, you know, um, major producers of these metals materials all pulled their guidance and kind of kicked the can to maybe 2022. And then I think that the last half of the last quarter of 2020 really shifted the narrative and sort of in, in a funny way, I think COVID accelerated uh, the battery metals thesis or this transition around electrification. Uh, you saw it in the share prices of a number of major lithium producers that were way, way up last year and even towards the end of, of last year. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout um, January of 2021, lithium pricing in particular in China has really taken off. Um, it's up uh, around 40% off of its lows, which is a really hopeful sign, I would argue, for um, for the entire energy metals complex, because typically with these niche metals or battery metals, what happens in China usually happens first, and then the price increase or, or decrease, as we saw over the last couple of years, happens throughout the rest of the world, perhaps six to nine months later. So I would think you would start to see materially higher lithium pricing in particular later this year into 2022 outside of China. So it's it's been very, very positive. And of course, what's behind that? Obviously, EV sales data, not just out of China, 
but out of the European Union as well. Last year, the European Union actually sold more electric vehicles than China did, which was a real surprise to the market. And it's also one of the reasons why there's so much interest in the space right now. So, you know, there's there's obviously the the green stimulus and ESG push behind it as well. But I'll pause there to, um, you know, let that sort of digest and, and happy to answer any other questions. Yeah, let's let's stick with this lithium conversation, because, I mean, a couple of lithium equities on my uh, list have just had incredible days and weeks and months. And mm-hmm. what it's almost interesting because I've always kind of figured, well, this is kind of a move predicated on, you know, battery technology, uh, the adoption of more electric vehicles. But now you're telling me that really, maybe it's not even considering the pricing in of the spot price of the metal that's maybe seven months ahead of us? Yeah, and that that is a little bit of a concern, to be honest with you. I mean, we all know, you know, those of us who have invested in junior mining plays or just in mining plays in general over the years, typically the catalyst is higher commodity pricing first, whether or not that's lithium or copper or what have you. Um, and then the the equities tend to catch that tailwind and, and really rip higher. And we've, in a funny way, we've sort of seen the reverse here. I mean, when you look at the share price performance of Albemarle, for example, just to use one of any number of lithium plays, I mean, I think at one point the shares were up over 100% last year. And this was in a market where, again, lithium pricing was in the dumps. Even the company themselves had pulled their guidance, as I mentioned before, and was really guiding for a pretty pretty subdued 2021 and sort of looking for brighter brighter days in 2022. And so actually, they, they have their earnings call next week. It'll be very interesting to see what one of the real leaders in the lithium space has to say about their views on the market and this kind of inversion in terms of how uh, commodity pricing and equity prices, uh, equity values, I should say, interact. I mean, it's been actually the, the higher pricing of the shares has been great for the companies, if for no other reason that uh, a number of them have been able to raise an enormous amount of capital, which is, of course, what we're going to need if we really, really want to build out this EV infrastructure from a from a raw material supply perspective. I mean, Albemarle has announced a one point two or one point three billion dollar equity offering. SQM announced a one point one billion dollar one Vulcan, uh, a junior in Europe. Uh, raised 125 million Australian uh, lithium Americas 400 million. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so it's it's very encouraging to see. So now, you know, the capital is getting raised and it just needs to be deployed, I guess, appropriately and uh, put to work. And so that's really the next step, I think, for a lot of these lithium plays. It's all about execution. I mean, we know that the demand is there based on what we're seeing with EV sales trends. So at least with respect to lithium, you know, it really is an execution story for these companies right now. Chris, do you have any idea who's coming in and participating in a lot of these big financings? I mean, what type of institutions, uh, you know, is it certain cohorts of, of groups of investors? Do you, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I think it's, and the other thing that is encouraging here is that, you know, the investor type is broadening out. Um, you know, it's not just this small group of perhaps investors that really understand chemicals or understand, you know, the lithium business in particular. It's not like it's just, you know, Chinese strategic money. I mean, it's hedge funds, it's sovereign wealth funds, it's high net worth. 
Um, it's even oil and gas. You know, I mean, companies really more involved on that side of the business, I think, are really taking a close look at raw material supply chains around lithium ion batteries. And so, you know, the the pool of capital um, is really broadened out. And I, that's something that to me, after having spent 10 years in this space, is really, really encouraging to see. Yeah. And it was announced that ExxonMobil was going to put $3 billion, I guess, of investing into carbon capture, I believe. Uh, but you like, do you think this is kind of the start of the trend of seeing these typically uh, traditional energy companies, i.e. oil, maybe better late than never stepping into the electrification and, and, and the power of, you know, what would be the power for vehicles? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, the challenge with when you're, you're a super major oil and gas player and you've got, you know, I'll just tens of billions or hundreds of billions in market cap. Um, and you look at lithium, for example. I mean, look, lithium is a $3 billion a year industry. It's going to grow. We know that. Uh, but it's still very small. And so for one of these oil and gas super majors to make an upstream investment, I mean, it's really got to move the needle for them. And and to date, it hasn't. You know, it's just been too small. And of course, in my own personal view is that the oil and gas business and the the traditional mining business are actually quite different, especially when you start dealing with specialty chemicals like lithium, where purity is the name of the game. And you can have lithium, of course, coming from hard rock or clay or brine. So, you know, the, the oil and gas players, you know, have looked further downstream thus far. They've said, OK, well, what about charging infrastructure? What about um, you know, other other further downstream um, aspects of the supply chain as opposed to the raw materials. And I've always been sort of pounding the table that the raw material, you know, procurement and production is the most important part of the supply chain. And when you look at the R&D budgets of some of these oil and gas majors, I mean, they dwarf the entire lithium business. So, you know, it's all about how these oil and gas players decide to approach the market and deploy capital and, and quite frankly, protect themselves as this market grows. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned kind of the difference there of lithium deposits. And this leads up to a question I did want to ask you. Um, now that the lithium complex is getting a little bit more eyes and maybe there's more speculative money coming from the retail side of, of, uh, of investors, what do you want investors to know what should people be looking for when it comes to studying and doing due diligence on lithium explorers and potential producers yeah i think i mean in terms of of the structure of a company you know i mean obviously capital structure matters you want to see reasonable share counts and and a strategy that really minimizes dilution but if i had to pick one thing that I think is is the best predictor of success. And when I say success, I mean not just exploring and discovering, but building out a lithium asset. It's all wrapped up in what I would call the partnership model, okay? Again, as I mentioned before, the lithium business is, has always been very opaque and of course very small, you know, 350,000 tons a year in size even today, despite the strong growth we're going to see. And so, um, you know, there really isn't one type of group or one type of individual out there that can explore and develop and get into production and 
uh, enter into offtake agreements and produce 20, 30, 40, 50,000 tons of battery quality material at scale. You need a partner. And typically the partners that are coming into uh, the lithium space have much larger, more robust balance sheets, number one. And number two, they have experience in the lithium business. Okay, And there are a number of examples that we can look at where this is happening. Obviously, I think the most obvious one is Lithium Americas and Ganfang Lithium and what they're doing down in Argentina. Um, of course, Neolithium with CATL, again, a similar model down in Argentina. But you're starting to see more of those types of arrangements, joint ventures or partnerships uh, bubble up to the surface, if that's the way to think about it, best way to think about it, because quite frankly, the lithium business is just too difficult um, to really, I think, expect success from this one company to go from all the way from exploration and development into production. The partnership model is really your only way. Uh, let's take a step away from lithium because we could probably do a whole episode just on lithium. And maybe we will mm. do that sometime soon. Uh, I wanted to also get your thoughts on another metal here that also has surprised me. And that is graphite. Uh, a couple graphite explorers that I've followed in the last few weeks have seen tremendous moves. Uh, what is going on? What is the, 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 the macro behind graphite right now? Yeah, I think, you know, look, the, the, all of these metals, graphite, cobalt, lithium are sort of the big three that I think a lot of investors first got exposure to in the battery metal space. They're all benefiting from this, the green stimulus theme. Okay. Um, and, and I'm not going to say that's it, but, you know, obviously, Graphite in particular, I think, um, is a is a tougher one to really, really sort of break down because, of course, mo most of the anode material, almost all of it is still produced in China. So, you know, and also graphite is predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly a steel story. So when I look at graphite, I think about economic growth and how that looks over, you know, out over the next, I don't know, three to five years or something like that first. And then I think about, okay, well, what about you know, growth in the graphite business for batteries, which is, of course, very robust. The challenge there is that you still have a, much of the supply chain focused in China. And so how we kind of back away from that and build out supply chains ex-China is, is an open question in my mind right now. Um, but one, I think that can be solved. But you're looking at a, a, a resolution in terms of taking place, I should say, uh, in terms of years as opposed to months. So, you know, it's great that uh, a lot of these plays have caught a bid and, they, and they've roared. And again, I think it has to do with green stimulus and sort of what the EV market's gonna look like three to five to seven years down the road. But um, again, you know, when, when a lot of these commodities, when China is, is so powerful along portions of the supply chain, you just have to be really careful. Um, let, let's talk about China real quick because it's almost, as if it's China versus the world right now. Uh, the mm -hmm. United States and China, that relationship continues to be, oh, <laughs> pretty rough. Uh, the relationship <laughs> between Australia and China continues to be rough. Um, oddly enough, uh, European countries and their relationship with China almost seems to be improving. Um, you know, but what does this mean, this relationship Let's, since you and I are both U.S.-based, what does this relationship between the U.S. and China mean uh, for this, you know, kind of demand in the battery metals complex? 
Yeah, I think that it means that this whole idea, this theme or this thesis of the regionalization of supply chains is going to continue. Um, and it's not just going to be a Tesla story. Um, to be clear, you know, globalization isn't fading away, uh, I don't think. Uh, I don't think, you know, globalization will be cast in the dustbin of history. I think that we still will have a globalized trading system to a certain degree, but for certain elements, uh, for example, critical materials, I think it still makes all the sense in the world to focus on a regionalized supply chain strategy, um, whether or not, and you know, you can see that happening in the Eurozone and, and hopefully you can start to see it here with, um, you know, the new NAFTA um, in, in the United States and of course, Mexico and Canada. Um, so, you know, those, those seeds have been planted. I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that China is not going to, um, you know, slow itself down. I mean, I think that they, they want a higher quality of life for the average citizen over there and, and don't want the rest of the world, the United States and Eurozone really telling them how to do it or how to grow. And so, you know, whether or not this is a Cold War or not, I, I, I'll leave that to the political scientists to really kind of dissect. But I think the, the tension in the global trading system really means that um, a regionalized supply chain structure, in particular for battery materials, is, is really, really, um, I was going to say definitely going to happen. I'm very confident that it will happen. But again, this is something that's going to take place over you know, the course of, of the next few years. But this is a real tricky situation. And just kind of referring back to rare earths. I mean, we have seen kind of a frenzy into rare earths, just, you know, sp specifically that can be sourced here in the United States, the old Mountain Pass project in California, which then went bankrupt. And I, it sounds like I haven't caught up with Mountain Pass as in the recent year or two, but it sounds like, Things are looking a little bit better uh, for that project now. But but don't we need higher rare earth prices to make this stuff economic here in the States so we don't have to rely on China for some of those elements? Yes, would be the short answer. Yes, <laughs> it's an economic it's a it's a it's an economic argument here in the United States and in China it is there, there is an economic argument that needs to be satisfied, but it's really it's thought of differently. It's much more strategic and longer term in nature. And so, you know, obviously Mountain Pass is, is back in business with MP materials. They are producing, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 tons of concentrate per year at this point in time, which is more than the previous operators were mm. producing. So that's good news. The bad news is that it's still all being sent over to China to be separated. So, you know, again, it's a perfect example of here's something we could do. We have a domestic source. And by the way, there are other things happening really um, supported by the United States government, by the Department of Defense in particular, where companies like Linus um, are, are basically being sponsored, for lack of a better phrase, or have been um, given money to build separation facilities here in the United States. And of course, energy fuels which is a uranium vanadium producer here in the United States, wants to get in on the rare earth separation game as well. I mean, I've always maintained that rare earths in and of themselves are not rare. Uh, they're probably the worst named element out there, <laughs> worst named commodity out there. But, you know, separating them, purifying them, and then producing magnet material 
is rare, and that is something that doesn't really happen in the West, generally speaking. I mean, there is some that takes place in Europe, but, you know, you've got to have an, a longer term sort of lock on the supply and the separation capacity. And that's really what we're missing here in the United States. So we know what we need to do. It's just a question of combining the actual financial capital and the intellectual capital and getting sort of the, the political wins lined up and making it happen. Do you think there's an opportunity? We keep on hearing about an infrastructure bill, bipartisan bipartisan opportunity. I mean, you're based in D.C., so maybe you're hearing this talk on the streets. But could an infrastructure bill that is proposed have these type of big industry metal separation um, projects built into that? Is that part of the conversation? I would think so. I mean, you know, you would want to have, especially for, for high tech sort of industries or materials. I mean, I think, you know, any kind of infrastructure and, and, and of course the, the words green infrastructure, I mean, that's sort of a gigantic umbrella that you could sort of stuff a lot of different things under whether or not it's charging infrastructure for EVs. You would think that rare earth separation facilities, given their importance to the EV narrative, um, would be put in some sort of a bill, but you know, it remains to be seen. I mean, these bills are hundreds of pages long and stuffed with all kinds of different um, goodies. So yeah, you'd, you'd like to see things like that. Um, and obviously look, that's going to be very, very positive for the metals prices themselves. So yeah. Uh, Chris, let's leave it at that. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I, and I'm going to come back and ask you to join us again here in the near future because we are kind of working on a uh, a new battery metals type of virtual conference i'm hoping so oh, that's great. kind of in the works and i'm sure we'd uh, love to have your presence uh and uh maybe uh, present for that as well because your insight is just so valuable i appreciate you sharing everything with our listeners here no. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. All right. That's Chris Berry. He's the president of House Mountain Partners. Uh, we will be back later today with some more market commentary, everybody. Thanks so much. Take care. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.